Welcome to The Food Court, Season 2, a podcast hosted by me, Glenford Jameson, and supported by my law firm, G.S. Jameson & Company. We do great corporate, commercial, and regulatory work, primarily for stakeholders from all parts of the food sector. And when we're not doing that, we're researching, writing, or speaking on issues facing food and law. I'm (laughs) really excited about this episode. Don't know if I'm excited about all episodes. I think I am equally, but I'm particularly excited about this episode. We have on the pod Gerald Chan, who is now a partner at Stockwoods LLP. Congratulations, Gerald. That's very recent. Uh, it's a great firm in Toronto, and their lawyers only litigate. Um, you'll learn about Gerald's practice during the interview, but he does regulatory prosecutions, criminal and quasi-criminal crime, uh, white collar type stuff. I think most of the time. And on the pod today, we are talking food fraud. Now, Gerald and I are not scientists. We're lawyers. And at some point, I'll drag in a real food scientist to talk about these issues from a scientifically technical and accurate perspective. Like at some point, I'd like to speak with Dr. Chris Elliott, the scientist who headed up the investigation following the horse meat scandal in the United Kingdom uh, maybe three years ago, and uh, writes peer-reviewed papers, which are... but. Gerald, what he speaks to is equally important. Now, Gerald is the lawyer you might call if a group of Canadian Food Inspection Agency inspectors, who perhaps inspect your premises on the regular, if those same inspectors came to your door with a bunch of cops and a search warrant one day, and you weren't sure what to do. Now, what we do in this episode is think about the steps involved when inspections turn into investigations. From a very practical standpoint, What's the Crown thinking? How do they lay charges? What are they looking for? How do they search? How do you produce evidence? That sort of thing. We take you through what this might look like, the legal processes involved in an investigation. Now, food fraud is in the news because we have two relatively fresh examples. In the most technical sense, I suppose, we have one overdone example and one underdone example, but we'll meet in the middle. Relatively fresh. Examples to draw from. One is Moochie Farms et al., and that concluded uh, last year after a year's worth of uh, trial and criminal process. And, and then before that, I think three years of investigation. And it concluded with a series of charges related to mislabeled Mexican tomatoes. And as unsexy as that sounds, it was a pretty darn fun little case to follow. The underdone case is Saracola Farms. And this arose after Saracola had a fairly public and ugly uh, employment dispute which involved a whistleblower who suggested that Saracola was selling conventionally raised chicken as being either organic or raised without antibiotics. So the company has been uh, dragged in front of Superior Court along with some directors, and everyone is being charged with criminal fraud and a host of ancillary, quasi-criminal, and regulatory food offenses after the Canadian Food Inspection Agency has had time to run an investigation and so on. So the company has been dragged in front of Superior Court along with some directors, and everyone is being charged with criminal fraud and a host of ancillary quasi-criminal and regulatory food offenses now that the CFIA has had a chance to run an investigation. So that's pretty crazy stuff. I think uh, up until maybe two years ago, that may have never happened in Canada. I mean, even in the Listeria crisis, there were no criminal charges laid. Uh, Food crime right now is a really big deal. So it's a very different climate. In the rest of the world, food fraud is getting a ton of attention. We're seeing scandals related to counterfeit wines, falsely labeled fish, and fake basmati rice, and fake ginseng. 
The Tampa Bay Times' Laura Riley wrote a series called Farm to Fable, which has led the state attorney general looking into food fraud issues and the Florida Department of Agriculture changing entire programs of oversight, increasing investigations, and training. In the United Kingdom, the Food Standards Agency has established a national food crimes unit. The International Food Fraud Network is now based out of the University of Manchester, and Dr. Chris Elliott, who I mentioned earlier, is based out of Queen's University, Belfast, publishing mind-blowing papers and doing some great work with government and in research on this topic. Domestically, Dalhousie University's Sylvain Charlebois is releasing a study on food fraud on February 21st of this year, so keep an eye out for that if you're a domestic listener. I'm really curious to see what he has to say or what his findings are. But for Saracola and for Mucci, I'll leave it to Gerald to take it from here. Please enjoy. So where do you work? What do you do? Sure. So I'm, I'm a partner at Stockwoods LLP, uh, where I practice criminal, constitutional, and regulatory litigation. Uh, my previous life, I focused predominantly on criminal defense work. And I still do a lot of criminal defense work, but uh, increasingly I'm doing more uh, regulatory defense, white-collar criminal defense uh, work. So uh, defending both individuals and corporations whenever they're charged uh, with all types of misconduct, right? Anything from, from fraud under the criminal code, sort of your classic uh, criminal offenses to uh, more what I refer to as quasi-criminal offenses that are prosecuted uh, under the Provincial Offenses Act, if it's a provincial statute like the Health Protection and Promotion Act, or other federal statutes uh, like the Food and Drugs Act. So I'm typically on the defense side, on occasion we'll uh, uh, advise and, and represent regulatory bodies as well. Uh, so it's always interesting to get that uh, perspective, um, something different than what I'm, I'm used to typically. Uh, but, uh, you know, bulk of my practice is uh, devoted to defending people and corporations charged with wrongdoing. So how do you find moving away from straight criminal defense to into quasi-criminal uh, or regulatory actions is different? I mean, we're essentially playing with the same playbook, the same sort of actors looking for the same goals. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities to be sure. And I think there's probably more similarity between you know, traditional criminal defense cases and uh, regulatory prosecutions than there is between regulatory prosecutions and say sort of pure civil litigation. I mean, at the end of the day, you still have uh, a prosecutor, you still have a charge uh, that alleges some sort of misconduct. And if it's proven uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the standard that applies both to, to sort of pure criminal cases, uh, as well as the standard of proof that applies to quasi-criminal cases, uh, if it's proven at the end of the day, you, you still have a punishment in the form of uh, fines potentially, and in some cases even imprisonment. So, all of those similarities, I think, makes uh, you know for a practitioner makes it somewhat of a, a reasonably easy transition to move from pure criminal uh, case work to quasi-criminal regulatory uh, defense work. The same obligations apply to the crown, for example, uh, when it comes to disclosure. Um, so, you know, when you're sort of following the the lifeline of a case. Um, it follows a very similar path. Uh, you, you, you get notice of a charge, 
uh, and uh, there's a first court appearance, and the Crown then has to is obliged to make disclosure of any and all information in its possession that's not privileged and that's not clearly irrelevant. And so it follows a very similar uh, procedure and process. Um, and now, there are some differences, of course. Uh, you know, in, in regulatory defense in particular, you're often looking at offenses that are strict liability offenses, where all the Crown has to do is prove the prohibited act. So, you know, depending on what the offense is, if you're talking about an offense of, of mis, you know, false or deceptive labeling, the Crown just has to show that the, the label itself uh, was, was false uh, and, and did not correspond to the, the product uh, that it was purporting to describe. And then the onus shifts to the defense to show that it had, uh, you know, that it, it sort of prove what's called a due diligence offense, that it took uh, reasonable steps that it met the reasonable uh, sort of standard of care in having a system in place to prevent this sort of thing from happening in order to defend against the charge. So you have more strict liability offenses uh, to be sure when you're in the regulatory quasi-criminal field and that can that can put more of a, a burden on the defense than, than the defense might be used to when defending a, a classic criminal charge uh, like fraud, for example. There are also other, other interesting you know, issues we can get into in terms of how the investigations uh, are, are conducted, et cetera. You're the perfect person to be here today because we're wading into essentially all three of these universes, crim, quasi-crim, and regulatory offenses. We're talking about food crime and food fraud specifically today. Yes. Now, food crime has been a, a massive deal. Like, in the media... More in the EU than it has been here over the last few years. Uh, Britain, uh, a major beef supplier, was actually uh, using and importing horse meat and supplying it and prepared, I believe, burgers. Uh, since then, there have been a variety of smaller types of food crime that have been revealed to the point where the UK has created a food crimes unit. In Canada, uh, these sorts of things would be dealt with typically by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, or CFIA. Right. What we're learning is that there's a lot of weird stuff that happens to our food. And there seems to be sort of two types of, of, of fraud when we're talking about food fraud specifically. And one is something that thankfully we've been, we've been pretty safe from, which is essentially the sale of unfit food or adulterated or harmful adulterants. So right. recently in the EU, they found uh, uh, Thai rice that was largely made of plastic. It's like, that'll do a number on your gut. That's not great. Yeah, that, doesn't sound, that. that doesn't sound all that appetizing. <laughs> although, although, interestingly, I, I saw a report in the news the other day that Walmart had been charged uh, out in Alberta. A whole series of counts of selling contaminated food, food that had been uh, contaminated in the Fort McMurray fire. No. So they've been charged under the, what, what appears to be the provincial statute out there, the Public Health Act, for sell, you know, selling food that's unfit for human consumption. There's a similar offense in the federal statute in the Food and Drugs Act, but they appear to be going the provincial offenses route out there. But that'll be an interesting case to to watch because I, I it, it did strike me as unusual because I don't you don't see as many cases in Canada at least where where it's uh, you know where the uh, uh, criminal charge or the quasi criminal charge relates to the actual sort of you know actual food safety as opposed to uh, absolutely you know, simply you know misleading advertising type offenses absolutely and that's i mean the that latter part is really sort of what we want to talk about today which mm -hmm. is this idea of uh, deliberately misleading a consumer right or deliberately misleading uh, someone for a profit right that's sort of where we enter into into food fraud in another entirely different way so uh in ontario there is a uh, lovely tomato growing region in the south there are a variety of vegetable greenhouse growers and one of them by the name of Moochie or Moochie Pack or Moochie International, 
uh, it appears was importing tomatoes from Mexico and under an investigation was bringing them in, relabeling them Canadian and sending them on their way to the Ontario Food Terminal, to Costco, to Sobeys and to Loblaws. And the CFIA cut went to that. Why don't we let you uh, you take sure. it from here? It, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, just taking a step back, it'll be interesting to see what direction Canada goes in. I mean, if you take a broader view of this, Canada has been criticized in other sectors um, for not being sufficiently robust in its attempts to crack down on, you know, white collar crime, um, you know, whether that be securities types of type offenses, you know, insider trading, stock tipping, whether that be um, foreign corruption and the, and the bribery of foreign public officials, um, uh, whether that be in sort of competition, a- antitrust violations, uh, Canada not, has not to date been perceived as a country that is um, all that well-resourced and uh, tough on white-collar crime, uh, you know, leaving aside the merits of, of whether or not that's true, but certainly in comparison to our neighbors south of the border and in comparison to the UK, uh, we're not perceived as being uh, the toughest in that sense. And, and, and often the complaint is that we just don't devote enough resources or our, our law enforcement bodies are not... Um, sufficiently trained to go after certain types of offenses because it is different than investigating for example you know armed robbery or or investigating right. a homicide investigating sort of blood and guts type offenses which our law enforcement uh, bodies seem very well equipped to do i think it's a little bit different when you're going after a business for some sort of business related uh, offense whether it be you know criminal or quasi criminal so um It'll be interesting to to follow uh, the law enforcement bodies in Canada when it comes to f- you know food crimes to see what direction they go in. The Mucci Farms case, which you which you refer to, is is an interesting one because it may, you know, it's it's one case, um, and you know you never know you never you don't want to draw uh, or overstate the impact of one case and draw too much from it. But it could also signal that the uh, Canadian Food Inspection Agency is going to be taking a tougher approach uh, or going to be looking more closely at food labeling violations. Um, so Mucci Farms, I think, was, was particularly interesting because the charges there were, uh, there was a regulatory offense uh, under the Food and Drugs Act of uh, false or, or deceptive labeling. And that's you know what we talked about earlier. That's a strict liability offense. It's not considered a, a classic criminal offense because the onus does shift to the defense to, to show that it was duly diligent. Um, that's not to say the penalties aren't aren't uh, significant. They're quite significant. Uh, there can be, you know, uh, I think the, the fine can be two hundred fifty thousand dollar per count for corporations. And in Mucci Farms, uh, what happened was they they charged under both the Food and Drugs Act. They also charged, interestingly, under uh, Section three eighty of the Criminal Code, which is the general fraud provision. Yeah, that's and, like grown-up fraud. Oh yeah, that that I mean that that's a classic <laughs> criminal offense, right? That this this is, you know, leave aside uh, regulatory litigation. That you know you're you're in the criminal code. You are in the criminal courts with this offense. So uh, it is it, it definitely ups the ante when they when they charge that. Now, along with that, you know, more severe charge comes more uh, of a responsibility for the crown because they have to the onus doesn't shift. The crown uh, onus remains on the crown throughout to prove beyond a reasonable doubt uh, that there was the prohibited act. So in the case of fraud, it's an act of deceit, falsehood, or or some other act. And I, I always find this this uh, test uh, to be 
somewhat amusing and confusing, but some act that a reasonable person would consider to be dishonest. That's very broad. It, it's it's like potentially kids, incredibly broad. Like. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's sort of a smell test, right? If, if, uh, if you look at it and, it and it looks like, you know, something that's not, uh, uh, that's not honest or not, not what you should be doing, um, uh, then it, it could potentially fall within the confines of fraud. Uh, so it's, it's at least on its face a very broad provision. And now there also has to be a deprivation, um, but the deprivation can be, uh, it doesn't have to be actual financial loss to the victim, even you know, putting their pecuniary interests at risk of loss is enough to make out the element of deprivation under fraud. So potentially a very broad offense. Uh, that said, the onus is on the Crown throughout to prove the elements beyond a reasonable doubt, and you have to prove that they did it knowingly. Right? So there is an intentional element there that's not necessarily there when you're just dealing with a regulatory offense like false labeling under the Food and Drugs Act. Uh, so there is more of a burden on the crown to, to make out the offense of fraud. But simply putting the charge uh, on the table ups the ante and, and exposes the, uh, the company, if it's a company that's charged, to, to far greater jeopardy because there is no maximum fine for fraud under the criminal code where it's you know, fraud under the criminal code is divided into two categories. Either it's fraud under five thousand dollars or fraud over five thousand dollars. Now, for, <laughs> if we're talking about food, you know, industry crimes, we're almost always going to be over five thousand dollars. So, yeah. once you're in that category, there's no maximum fine, and you know, theoretically, it's up to fourteen years imprisonment. Although, you know, it's it's a rare case that actually approaches that that ceiling. Um, so, you know, they they lay charges under under both statutes in Muji Farms now. You know, the, the, the defendants ended up resolving it with a guilty plea, and they did not plead guilty to the criminal code charge. The fraud was taken off the table as part of the, as part of the resolution. They, they simply pled guilty to the uh, regulatory offense. Uh, but this, the penalty was, was still severe. You know, it was a, both, I think it was two senior officers of the company, the VP and the general manager, That's both right. pleaded guilty in their individual capacities, and the company pleaded guilty. I think there are a total of, of eight counts that were, uh, that, you know, that they were found guilty of, uh, and the total fine, the global fine, was 1.5 million dollars, and that may not even be the more most intrusive part. There was also a three-year probation order. The probation order is huge. It's huge. You know, it doesn't sound. You, you think of probation orders, you're like, ah, it doesn't sound so bad, <laughs> uh, but you know, three years is the maximum uh, period that they can be that they can be imposed uh, for under the criminal code. And, you know, if you look at the terms of the order in Muchi Farms, it was very intrusive. You know, they have now it, it is it, it's a probation order very much geared towards, I think, the regulatory purpose of the Food and Drugs Act. Right. Which is Definitely. not so much to punish, um, uh, but more so to ensure compliance with the regulations uh, in order to protect the public interest. So there were but that doesn't mean that they're not intrusive. I think the terms included. You know, they had to, they were required to develop policies, standards, and procedures. They were required to, uh, you know, I think develop those within three months of the order, and then three months ensure implementation within four months. Uh, and then, you know, they're also required to appoint a senior officer in charge of compliance. Um, perhaps most intrusive was a requirement that the CFIA, I think, they were basically granted unfettered access to Muchi Farms and their to their electronic databases. That's right. In order to ensure that they were complying with, uh, you know, with the order. Well, and not just relating to food either. I mean, what's amazing to me is in the order they say, okay, so we're gonna get we're gonna get complete access to to this electronic database called Famous. 
right. which is something that's commonly used to track inventory uh, in like these sorts of cases. But they're also like, and by the way, I also want to see uh, all of your iTrade account, which as best I can tell is essentially like a Forex account. It's right. like, you know, just want to see you know, if you're trading pesos and who's coming in and what and what you're spending. We're going to track all of your money. Right. You're granting us access to that for three years. That's right. No, I, I mean, look, in, in uh, outside of my outside of my um, uh, food law uh, practice, I do a lot of work in terms of uh, digital privacy, computer searches and seizures. And so I'm always wary of investigators being granted unfettered access to computer systems. Right? <laughs> you, you never know. You just, I mean, the user and the owner of the computer, him or herself, doesn't know what's on there, frankly. Yeah, that's right. You know, deleted files are on there. You know, files that you can't open or access can be recovered forensically by other people. Files that you may not even know are on there may not have ever seen can, can find their way inadvertently onto your computer. So it, it, it does open up Pandora's box to... Uh, grant uh, an investigative body unfettered access to to your database. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't good reason to come to that resolution in Wuchi Farms. There may well have been very good reason to do so, but I think it, it underscores how intrusive these probation orders can be and highlights the importance uh, for, you know, of defense counsel going through the proposed terms that the Crown is trying to put on the table carefully before uh, agreeing to them. There may be very good reason to agree to them because of other circumstances in the case, uh, but I think it's important at least to appreciate how these, these terms can affect your client, perhaps more so than a, a lump sum payment, uh, even a lump sum payment as big as $1.5 million. Definitely. Definitely. Well, and, I mean, the $1.5 million is a fascinating number because over, I mean, we were talking about this prior to recording. Right. For 15 months, for 14 months, they were investigated. And uh, during that period of time, they found that a million dollars, roughly, of, of tomatoes were fraudulently sold. Right. And so so it's like the punishment sort of fits the crime. Like, there's public That's policy right. element here. We want to essentially recoup any gain that you would get. And then, like, another little wrap on the wrist for doing that. To yeah. have the money come out of the director's pockets personally was meaningful. Right. And, and that'll, that'll serve as an interesting point of comparison, I think, for future cases. I mean, it's, this is an area where we don't yet have a, a significant body of case law. It's sort of analogous to the, to the foreign corruption area in that sense. And that you're, oh, only, yeah. you're, starting to see, yeah. you're starting to see a pickup in enforcement. You don't have a lot of sort of considered judicial decisions when it comes to uh, interpreting the, the statute and, and more importantly, perhaps, when it comes to sentencing. What you do have are, are you know, one or two cases where there have been guilty pleas, joint submissions on sentencing, uh, and an ultimate penalty imposed. So that's all you really have to go on. It is something. Um, at the same time, you know, how much precedential value does one or two cases have, especially when it's just a guilty plea and a joint submission? Um, it's not a it's not a considered uh, reasoned judicial decision, you know, and that's no that's no criticism of the courts. I mean, the courts are required to. Uh, to accept a joint submission unless it would bring the administration of justice into disrepute or otherwise be contrary to the public interest. So they're, they're not supposed to just engage in a sort of, you know, uh, de novo analysis of what the appropriate penalty ought to be. <laughs> there, there's some deference to the to the parties when they present a, a joint submission as the penalty. Um, but, you know, all, all that, with all those caveats, I think at least Moochie Farms, it's interesting at least to show that we know what the Crown is going to be asking for. Yeah. Uh, right. If you've got a case where I think in Muji Farms, the misconduct, you know, uh, spanned 15, 14 or 15 months, I think it was. So if you've got a case where the misconduct is of that scale, you know, where there is a million dollars in sales um, flowing from the from the mislabeling. Um, and if you've got a case of, you know, where the misconduct is of that scale, then 
you know, reasonable number to expect in terms of what the crown's going to ask for is $1.5 million in a global fine. Yeah. Now, I mean, historically, you make a couple of great points there. One of them is that like we are really sort of operating in a vacuum. Like very rarely do we get full reasons or court of appeal decisions relating to um, to food offenses generally, right. right? I mean, there's no court of appeal decision on the Listeria crisis. The most recent one I can think of that involves food fraud is BC court of appeal case called Arabski. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a guy was selling something labeled as turkey, which was actually chicken, to Afghanistan. Uh, right. So I think that they're... Afghanis out there who think that our, our turkeys are rather small. But, uh, I mean, historically, too, I mean, Canada, from a food law perspective, has very prescriptive regulations. Right. Uh, and I think that that has enabled our regulatory system to really work towards compliance. Because effectively, any time that you go into a meat plant, if you want, I think, it's if you wanted to find something that was not quite to stab shoot, to as it is prescribed by the regulations or by the act... You can find it. Right. But the idea is that we're very clear, we're very specific, and we can work you back into compliance. And uh, and maybe there's some small fine. I mean, uh, administrative monetary penalties are starting to creep into the food sector. And so right. we're seeing, like, it's a $1,000 problem. Like, don't do it again. Yeah. Um, whereas in the U.S., is such an amazing comparison to Canada because the, a lot of the food laws are are more smell test-y or are more or broad. And so in the U.S., we see crazy class actions we see uh not inconsistent but uh it's it's less clear when um uh, when a regulatory action is going to start or when you may not necessarily be in compliance so there are Mm -hmm. these huge private agencies that essentially aggregate an understanding of what the general rules are and that's how you try and maintain compliance in canada it's very different so we don't have a case law like a deep jurisprudence when it comes to this area right uh, and even when crowns do get involved, uh, I mean, CFI has lawyers uh, and, uh, I mean, we deal with them frequently. And often it's about sort of reasoning out uh, a course of action to, to move forward. Someone's bringing in something that isn't compliant or isn't totally compliant. Well, it's like, well, we just want to have access to the goods to figure out what is and what isn't. So as opposed to destroying everything, we're going to figure out what we can let through. Right. And, and the crown, in my experience, which is a non-litigious experience, uh, is very reasonable, willing to listen and, uh, and really actually nice to work with. Uh, in the U.S., it's a totally different deal. And so this is, for me, like, like very new. And, and in this, this universe uh, of, let's say, retail goods and labeling infractions, uh, typically the penalty is having to draw all your goods off the market, right? right. So, so if you have to go through a recall, super expensive, everyone's upset, all your contracts are messed up, you can be exposed, your insurance company's involved, it's a mess. Forzani was a big case, I think roughly 2004, and the fine was something like a million dollars. But beyond that, I, I, we see $20,000 fines or $50,000 fines, nothing of this scale. It's right. truly remarkable. Right. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, and it's, it's a, I think it's, it's a problem that's not unique to the food se- sector necessarily, but but certainly one that seems to be playing out now in the food sector as well. But, you know, regulators, I think, are always wrestling with the question of how best to enforce their regulations, right? Do we do we just stick stick with the administrative uh, route where, where our standards of proof are not as high, where the procedural rights afforded to the uh, individual or company are not as great and where we can just focus on encouraging compliance 
perhaps impose an administrative monetary penalty? Um, or do we want to, you know, go down the path of, of uh, criminal or quasi-criminal enforcement where we have access to greater fines, more deterrence, but which, you know, uh, where we'll be held to a higher standard and where there are all sorts of special uh, procedural protections that will kick in for the target of an investigation. And, and it can be expensive, right? And I mean, if the, you know, so one, one of the issues I think that, that uh, 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 will come up is, when you have a body like the CFIA, which can go either route, right? They can, they have broad regulatory inspection powers. They, you know, you, they, they are almost uh, always in food facilities because they just have you know very broad oversight powers, and it's sort of a way of doing business that the CFIA is going to be a, a regular visitor to your food facility to check on things. Um, so when you've got a body like that, and they're given these broad regulatory powers. They've got to be careful too when they when they cross over into a, a criminal investigation role, which is also a role that they play. Uh, different obligations kick in for them. There's a case called Jarvis from the Supreme Court of Canada that was actually an income tax case, okay. but it has it, its application is broader than that. Um, basically, I think it 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 has application anytime you're talking about an area where there can be both regulatory uh, inspections and where there can be criminal investigations. And what that case says is, if the predominant purpose of the law enforcement body is to pursue a penal investigation, then they have they cannot rely on the broad inspection powers in their statute. In Jarvis, it was sort of broad audit powers, right? If you're in an audit, you, you can you know, compel the production of all sorts of documents from the other side. But once you cross over into, you know, we're, we're going to look at maybe uh, in building a case for tax evasion, what Jarvis says is, well, once you cross that line, you, what you cross the Rubicon was the language of the case. Uh, you, you Different procedural protections kick in. You can't rely on those broad warrantless inspection powers. You got to go get a warrant. Okay. You got to go get a warrant. And if so, if you don't and you continue relying on the broad inspection powers uh, when you're really pursuing, uh, you know, building a case for a criminal investigation, you could run afoul of the charter and there could be arguments for the defense later on that that, that evidence should be excluded. Because as a business owner, so let's say, let's say that you mislabel some things and you're not out to defraud anyone, it just sort of happens because right. this all moves very quickly. You've got inspectors in and out of your establishment all the time because you're federally regulated, and uh, and that's what we do. I mean, I'm almost picturing, uh, when I'm thinking about this, uh, someone showing up and saying, okay, we're under investigation now. And essentially all the inspectors changing their hat from CFIA inspectors to CFIA investigators. Right. It's like, okay, right. we're active. Like, let's go. And so as a business owner, these are people that I interact with all the time. Like, what am I supposed to talk to them about? Like, I don't know what they're able to do or how deeply they can probe. I mean, are they able to look at my chicken or tomatoes in the same way that they could before? Like, how does that, how does that run on the ground? I think, I think, I think certainly if you have any indication they're putting their investigator's hat on, that's, that's time, <laughs> it's time to call a lawyer at, at that point. Next regulatory uh, consultation, I'm going to recommend different hats. Yeah, ex- exactly. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you look at a body like the Ontario Securities Commission. Uh, they've just they created recently a team called the Joint Serious Offenses Team, and this team is intended to investigate and build cases for quasi-criminal prosecution, uh, and not simply regulatory action. You know where you'll get a where, where you're talking about your license to trade, or where you'll get an administrative monetary penalty. And what they've done to make sure that they're always complying with the rule in Jarvis and that they're never improperly crossing the Rubicon is they have they've created a wall. 
So they're, you know, JSOT investigators, the Joint Serious Offenses Team investigators, are completely walled off from the other uh, uh, OSC inspectors and, and officers. So that way, you know, it's, you know, we, we joked about the hats, but they, they, there is a very clear sign, a clear Absolutely. line of demarcation as to when we are in uh, simply, you know, regulatory uh, world and when we're moved into criminal investigation world not the same faces not there doing the same thing exactly and they've got an institutional barrier they've, they've got everything properly set up and so you know if you're if you're defending one of those cases it's much harder to argue that there's been a Jarvis violation um, now it, you know different different law enforcement bodies will do things differently that's not to say that that's the only way to respect the rule in Jarvis but it certainly helps uh, people on the ground understand when you're in a regulatory regime and when they've moved into criminal investigation uh, realm. Often on the ground, you're not going to know uh, that they're wearing a different hat until they show up with a search warrant. Right. Right. Um, uh, in, in, <laughs> that should raise so, some flags. Yeah, well, exactly. They show up with a search warrant. They show up with a criminal code <laughs> search warrant. You know something. Call Gerald. Exactly. That's, that's the time. Yeah, I, you know, I, I will leave my business card, but uh, th- that that is that is definitely when you need to to call counsel. And it does raise interesting questions as to what to do practically speaking. You know, should you ever be in the undesirable situation of being served with a search warrant and having a flood of investigators show up at your premises, right? And it could be the same faces that you see on a regular basis from the CFIA. But they show up with a search warrant and and the the complexion of the case has changed for sure. Um, They're, you know, definitely call a lawyer. Uh, I think you, you want the lawyer to very carefully review the terms of the warrant to ensure that uh, they are, are only getting that which they are entitled to get. Um, you, you, you need to cooperate with the warrant to be sure. You don't want to be charged with obstruction of justice for preventing the investigators from doing what they're entitled to do. Uh, but, but you're entitled to call counsel and to, and to have counsel examine the warrant. Uh, to have counsel perhaps get on the phone with the with the head investigator and say, okay, well, can you send me the warrant and, and perhaps discuss some of the terms with the investigator. Uh, one thing I would always counsel is is um, whoever is on site, whoever is on the premises when the warrant is being executed, I think should take very careful notes hmm. as to what's being looked at and what's being taken. Keep your own inventory uh, just for proper record keeping. Um, and, and you want to keep a careful record of what's, you know, where the investigators are, what they're looking at. It may never be necessary to raise this, but there, you know, the the investigators are under an obligation to execute the warrant in a reasonable manner, and they're under an obligation to stick closely to the terms of the warrant. This the warrant is not a is not a license to just you know scour uh, the entire building, uh, even you know if uh, right. and to look for anything and everything under the sun. They, they they have a defined list of evidence that they are allowed to look for, and they have to act reasonably in looking for that evidence. Um, one thing that, uh, that is sort of a very delicate matter and that I think companies have to be very careful about is, you know, everyone has the right to silence, right? So when the investigators are in there executing a warrant, you know they're in adversarial mode, you know they're in, in penal investigation mode. It is true that employees and staff don't have to answer their questions, um, you know, the investigators are not supposed to be in there conducting an interrogation of everybody. That said, it, it, it puts senior management in a very difficult position because you don't necessarily want to, you have to be very careful if you're going to be telling a staff member or an employee, hey, you don't have to answer that question because it, it's a very fine line between telling someone what their legal rights are and 
discouraging someone from speaking to an investigator, which could be obstruction of justice. So that's one of those very sensitive issues, and and you know all the more reason why you wanna you, you wanna get legal counsel quickly on the phone. So if someone if they do show up with a warrant, can you press pause? Well, hey, first off. Can it just be the regulatory body, or do they need to have police present as well? Is it they? They can have. They're, they're entitled to have police officers there. To keep, generally, the police officers are only there to keep the peace, right? Um, and make sure that that uh, everything's done in an orderly manner, and, so and they're not going to be the ones searching. Usually, it'll be the CFIA investigators uh, who are doing the searching, uh, right. and who are authorized by the warrant to do the searching. And then, sort of follow up to that, so they show up. Uh, this cadre of, of regulators and, and law enforcement. Um, can you press pause until someone comes down to sort of advise you of, of what you're obligated to show? Or does it just happen? Is this just happening to you? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's just happening in the sense that you have to let, you know, you, you can't prevent them from entering until you get your lawyer on the phone. If they've got a warrant and the warrant allows them to enter, they're allowed to enter and they right. can start searching. Now, they're, they're reasonable, right? So I think, I think what you want to do is, is first ask to have a, have a look at the warrant, have a copy of the warrant. They should have a copy there for you to examine. And then say, look, I'd like to, I'd like to, to call my lawyer to get legal advice. I'm not going to stop you guys from executing uh, the warrant. Uh, but I'd like to get legal advice and uh, potentially get you on the phone with my lawyer if that would assist. Um, and and you know they they and and keep a record of, of these conversations. Yeah, right. That's number one. Make a note for any of these right? things happen it, in my end. Exactly. Make Take a notes. note. <laughs> I, I've asked to talk to a lawyer. This is when I was allowed to call a lawyer. This is what people were doing in the meantime. Um, just just so there's a, a clear record of everything that's happening. It can be examined afterwards. Maybe there, you know, maybe everything was done above board. More likely than not, it was. Uh, but yeah. if there was a violation, at least your your lawyer can examine at that time and decide what remedies uh, to seek afterwards. Definitely, yeah, my knowledge of contemporaneous note taking during an event is uh, and of of evidence is weak. But I know that that's important. You're going to want to rely on those at some point. Exactly. You, you, you know, a well a well prepared note. You, you never know when can when it can come in handy, but uh, it's always important to have it there. So they do their initial investigation, uh, and you and senior management—not you, but senior management—and their board and their shareholders are all shareholders probably don't know yet, but mm-hmm. uh, their board are all aghast. They don't know what's happening. What happens next? You just wait, and there may be nothing, but there may be something, and we're just gonna wait and see. Oftentimes, that's that's all you can do. I mean, now <laughs> everybody's just it, apoplectic. Just... What what you'll know at this point is clearly there is an investigation. There's a right. you know a, a penal investigation going on, and the warrant will the warrant has to spell out what offenses it is that they are investigating. So you'll at least understand from that um, what's what's on the table. Also, if you know the the CFIA and, and other law enforcement bodies will typically, if you ask. Uh, disclose the what's called the ITO, the information to obtain the warrant, um, and that that's the document that lays out their grounds for getting the search warrant. And you know the the investigators are under a duty to make full, frank, and fair disclosure in that document to the justice of the peace in order to get the warrant. The purpose that serves for you is it will outline the investigation to date, um, and so you will get a sense of. How this, how the, you know, did it arise from a complaint, a whistleblower? Uh, you know, was the CFIA in one day doing an inspection and they saw something that that looked wrong? You'll get some sense of what this is all about uh, from that document. 
Now, they could, you know, in, in classic criminal cases, like drug cases, for example, when they execute a search warrant, usually they're arresting the, the, uh, defend, you know, the, the would-be defendant at the same time, and you're charged, and you get bail, hopefully, and you get out, and then now you get to defend the charge. Um, in in white-collar cases, uh, including food cases, it's not necessarily going to play out that way. They could execute the warrant, and you may then hear nothing for a number of months. Uh, right. While they do further investigation, right, um, and and the reason, and I think that's going to happen with an increasing amount of frequency because of the Supreme Court's latest decision in Jordan on Section 11B of the Charter, right. which deals with you know your trial to right your, your right to trial within a reasonable time. The clock only starts to run on unreasonable delay when the chart when the information has been sworn to lay the charge. So that means if the CFIA is not ready. Uh, if they still have a lot of investigating to do, they don't necessarily want to lay the charge yet, even if they have grounds to do it. Because if they lay the charge, the clock is running. They got to get you know their stuff into gear. They got to get stuff organized. They got to make disclosure in a timely way. And Jordan says, you know, 18 months in provincial court, that's the presumptive ceiling for unreasonable delay. So, and these cases are very paper heavy, very time intensive. So we can easily get to that point. So that's, I think, one reason why you're going to see law enforcement bodies not rushing to lay charges. They're going to make sure they complete their investigation so that once they lay charges and the clock starts to run, they're ready to dis- make disclosure and they're ready to move the case forward. Um, so there may be some silence after after uh, a, a, wor- a search warrant is executed. Now, that doesn't mean there's nothing you can do. Uh, there are certainly steps that can be taken and should be taken by a company when that happens. Um, one of the one of the earliest things that probably ought to you know thought should be given to doing at least is you know who's implicated in this right. investigation right. Um, are you know wh- which senior officers of the company are implicated do they need independent counsel because their interests may not be aligned with the company's interests and uh, another valuable function of independent counsel is that independent counsel can advise the senior officer about his or her right to silence. Uh, and there you won't get into obstruction of justice issues if it's their own lawyer giving them that advice, that, it's, that, you know, that they have that right uh, and they may want to avail themselves of that right. So certainly, you know, if you have a lawyer who's representing a company who's just been on the receiving end of a search warrant, uh, that's one of the first things that thought should be given to is to, is to who are the officers who, who may be implicated in this, who may be charged themselves in an individual capacity, and does it make sense to refer them out for independent counsel so they've got some legal representation uh, since the company's interests and their interests may not all, you know, always be aligned. So in, uh, in the information in the case, it says that we started to do an investigation to look into this in late 2011. Right, uh, and then in January 2013, we wrapped that up, and then we sat on this for a bit, and we put out our warrant. It looks like in 2014. So right. during that early stage, what is um, does the company know anything? Is this just the CFIA sort of compiling a file, looking for evidence, talking to people at various points in the supply chain? Yeah, it, it could be, or it could it could go dormant for a while because there are other priorities, right, right, uh, more pressing priorities uh, on the CFIA's plate. Uh, but it, it's rare that you know if they are really in the mode of building a case uh, and conducting a penal investigation, you're not going to know it until you get the search warrant, typically, right. because they're going to hold their cards pretty close to their chest. 
at that point. Now, if it, you know, and this is this is something that you can always examine if a charge has been laid and you get full disclosure. You want to look very carefully at the disclosure, the notes of the investigators, and other other documents they've disclosed because you want to find out. Well, when when did this actually become a penal investigation? Right, right. They're going to say it became a penal investigation when they got the search warrant because that's what they're required to do once it becomes a penal investigation. But if there's something in the disclosure that suggests that it actually went that route earlier than that, but they weren't they didn't they didn't get a search warrant at the time. They were they were in our you know premises all the time, pursuant to their broad regulatory inspection powers. Then you may have a Jarvis issue. So I think, but that's that's right. something that you have to to think about uh, when when the disclosure lands on your desk after a charge has been laid, if it ever gets uh, to that point. But from the CFIA's perspective and any other law enforcement body, um, their interest when conducting an investigation is always going to be to hold their cards close to their chest and not not uh, let the target or anyone else uh, know too much about what they're looking into until they feel like they've got a sufficient case to at least go out and get a warrant. Uh, right. Take the investigation to that next level. That's when it'll become uh, apparent to you what's uh, is part of what's going on, and then you know, uh, you know, then, then you'll wait for the hammer to drop. Hopefully, it'll never drop if the investigation <laughs> if, the, if the investigation doesn't doesn't uh, turn anything uh, turn up any evidence of wrongdoing. But if it does, uh, charges will be laid at some point. Yeah, it was funny. Why well, again in this case, it was a random inspection by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency looked into a box that was uh, labeled product of Canada and all of the right. individual peppers or tomatoes, it was either tomatoes or peppers. I think it was peppers had product of Mexico written on them. Just right. like, I'm just going to put that in my back pocket for later. This That's is interesting. Right. And that wasn't even at their premises, right? This was at no, the this, Ontario food terminal. This is in Toronto. Yeah. 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 Later down the supply chain. Yeah. It's interesting because I mean, for me, when I initially, uh, when I, this initially came across my radar that there were charges being laid a couple years ago, uh, the big question for me is, well, like, how do you find this stuff out? I mean, the consumer, and, and the regulatory authorities, once a tomato moves from where it was brought in to the general marketplace, but for having some sort of sticker or label on it, how can I ever know if something is from Argentina or Mexico or the United right. States or the Netherlands or Canada? Yeah, you're not, you're not going to have some sort of adverse physical reaction to it as totally. a consumer. Oh, those Dutch, those Dutch tomatoes, terrible. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a meaningful distinction particularly for Canadians, right? I mean, we, right. we subsidize agriculture here to make things affordable and to make it viable to run growing operations, right? right. It's not a hospitable place for the most part to grow fresh fruit and vegetables, right? Your local CSA will demonstrate that for you. Um, and so because of that, I mean, taxpayers' money goes to subsidize this deal. It's like it is meaningful when you support Canadian agriculture, right? Uh, as a sort of, I'm a big like, vote with your wallet kind of guy. Right. When it comes to this issue. And so it is a meaningful distinction. No one's health is at risk, but uh, but this false labeling has sort of knock-on effects if it's not kept in check. But this amazing problem of a highly perishable product that, uh, that uh, just has substantively nothing different than, uh, than another product from another country uh, that you should really care about. The CFIA tasked with figuring that out is just an, an amazing challenge. That's right. And, so, and, and even then, you know, even if you do discover some discrepancy, right, where along the chain uh, did that happen? That's uh, right. And, and who's to, you know, where along the food chain did that happen? Who can, who, who uh, is to bear responsibility for that? That's not going to be an easy question to answer necessarily. Definitely. No, no question. No question, right? And it's, I mean, none of us are going to this greenhouse in Essex County to 
go right. and buy our tomatoes, right? Right. We're going to Loblaws, Sobeys, or Costco. We're sort of the three named parties in this action. Right. Um, but this moves us on to a new case that's recently emerged. It uh, came to light this uh, this fall, and it's Sarah Cole of Farms. Well, actually, I should back up. It did not come to light this fall. And in a more full sense, it came to light a few years ago. There was an employment action with a deeply unhappy uh, employee of a chicken processing facility that, uh, coupled with an employment claim, had a whistleblowing component to it. And there was mm-hmm. a press conference, and she uh, wagged her finger and essentially said, uh, these guys are replacing uh, antibiotic-free orders with conventionally raised chicken and organic orders with conventionally raised chicken. And they're being turned into a label called Blue Goose, which is supremely expensive as compared to conventionally raised chicken products and it's being sold to the consumer at a premium with the guarantee that it is organically raised which is which is substantially different than uh the conventionally and antibiotic free chicken uh i mean to raise these chickens you're going to some serious lengths to make sure that uh that a flock doesn't touch uh any sort of antibiotics over the course of them being raised so uh, so it's a big deal and a huge distinction. Maybe not again in sort of an immediate sense, but definitely in terms of of those that really believe in in organics leading to more sustainable farming, uh, or those who really jump onto uh, anti antibiotic free as as an important part of a strategy for uh, antimicrobial resistance. It's like these are meaningful distinctions. And so the case went on its way. I'm not sure exactly what happened, which means I presume that it was settled. Uh, but this fall, all of a sudden, Seracola Farms and a couple directors made their first appearance in court uh, on exactly the charges that were set out by uh, by this whistleblower. That's right. And so, unlike in in the Moochie case where it's the Ontario Fruit Terminal, like we had a quick peek into uh, our box of Cadian grown or Ontario grown produce, and they happen to be from Mexico because of the labels on all of the individual tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this came up because of a disgruntled employee. Um, and that's, that certainly makes life a lot, lot easier for the investigators because it's hard work, you know, as, as, as you talked about earlier, when you see, you know, you, you notice a discrepancy, okay, fine, in the labeling, where in the food chain did that supply chain, did that happen? Uh, even then, you know, how, how many discrepancies are there? You know, mistakes happen. Right, totally. um, and it, to take to take a discrepancy and and elevate it to the level of uh, at least at the level of a regulatory offense, where you can say, you know, where you think uh, it, it'll come out that the that the whoever it was that was responsible didn't have the proper systems in place to prevent it from happening, and then if you want to take it even further to try to prove that there was intentional mislabeling, yeah, that's hard investigative work. Um, now, if you've got a whistleblower uh, or a disgruntled employee who who comes forward and has direct knowledge of what's going on, we're not saying that that this is the case with the Saracola Farms necessarily, but just just speaking hypothetically uh, 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 in terms of how these things might play out, then that certainly makes life easier for the investigators and for the Crown who's prosecuting the case afterwards. Yeah, in terms of food crime, it's almost like like having someone's name scrawled in blood on a wall and a body and a bag of money and an axe, right? And it's like, right. great, like someone's connected some dots for us. Let's have a look into this and figure out where we can go. Right. Now, now I'm putting on my defense lawyer hat for a moment. <laughs> I mean, any any time you have a whistleblower or, you know, in sort of classic criminal cases, uh, what you have more often is a confidential informant. Mm. Um, anytime you've got that sort of situation, the, the credibility of the of the tipster or complainant uh, is going to be 
uh, squarely an issue. And there may be no issues with their credibility, but there may also be, you know, what, what drove them to come out with this? Why were they disgruntled employee? What was their role, if any, in what was going on at the time? Um, was there any reason, did they have any reason for animus against the, against the company that might color their uh, credibility when it comes to the allegations that they're making? So it, it, the same, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not a completely clear path either for, for either the investigators or for the prosecution. And it comes with its own issues in terms of actually making out the case uh, at the end of the day. In this case, there, there's clearly, I mean, cynic or not, as, as a disgruntled employee that's going through mm-hmm. an employment suit, like it would be impossible for a court to disregard that. How do you, I mean, it was, it was all of a sudden this whistleblower simply enough to start an investigation into whether something was happening or not and otherwise can be disregarded or can she be incorporated into this process here on out? Yeah, I, I think it depends. And I, I don't know how, and, I, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not definitely not speaking about Seracola Farms now because I don't know how it yeah, played well, out necessarily. Yeah, we should but... say this for the listeners. Like, we essentially know there was a first appearance and we know roughly the charges and it looks very similar in a lot of ways to the Moochie case. But, That's right. But beyond that, there's no transcripts to go and read or nothing salacious. That's right. We, we, don't know what's, we don't know what's playing out, uh, how it's playing out so far in that case. But you know, it's, it's interesting because it is a, the, the, the CFIA and the Crown at least seem, seem to be following a similar playbook in the sense that like Moochie Farms, you have uh, false labeling charges under the Food and Drugs Act. Like Moochie Farms, you have a, a criminal code charge under the general fraud provision. Um, and so we'll see what, what plays out from there. But, uh, I mean, taking the general situation, anytime you've got a, a, a whistleblower, complainant, uh, tipster, confidential informant, anything like that, um, because they're, you know, if, if, if all the investigators in the crown are going on are their information alone that's a pretty risky proposition because their credibility is going to be central and if they don't have you know if there are reasons to undermine their credibility um, you're not going to be able to make the case out on a standard to beyond a reasonable doubt Uh, what happens more often is their tip will lead the investigators to take certain steps to see if they can corroborate uh, what he or she is saying and right. so, you know, if they, they may go get a warrant on the strength of her tip to say, look, we received this tip. Um, you know, it seems cred- credible. Uh, it's based on firsthand knowledge. We've done a little bit of work to corroborate, you know, what she's saying. We've corroborated that, yes, she was a former employee and, and uh, uh, yes, she did work there during this time period. And yes, she did have a role that would allow her to um, you know, be privy to what she's saying happened. And they'll go get a warrant on that basis. And that may lead to the discovery of evidence uh, of wrongdoing, which they can then rely on when it comes to when it comes to a trial, if it ever gets that far, when it comes to a prosecution. Uh, and that way, the, the, that's not to say the credibility of the original tipster or complainant becomes irrelevant. It doesn't because the defense can still challenge the, you know, whether a warrant should have been granted and in that way raise the credibility of the of the complainant or tipster uh, but at least that way you've met the, the investigators and the prosecutors now have sort of you know real evidence of wrongdoing um, that they can that they can rely on or seek to rely on in a prosecution so let's head back into sentencing and let's just sort of my question for you, and, and so we had said earlier that the sentencing seemed to fit the crime in the Moochie example, right? So it's it's a million dollars of profit made by way of fraud or fraudulently labeled tomatoes and, and violations of the consumer, uh, the CPLA mm-hmm. and the Canada Cultural Act and that sort of thing. 
these regulatory things. And so, so there was a real fit. Uh, and the CFIA's mandate is really to protect, I mean, very similar to the Ontario Securities Commission. It's important to, to protect trust and faith in the food system, as well as to ensure health and safety and the economic well-being, and the economic well-being of, of actors. Right. Um, because there's so little case law in food fraud, I was wondering if you could talk to us about, about what considerations go into, uh, into sentencing and penalties. Sure. In, in these sort of act, like in, in actions where those same sort of public policy goals are, are at stake. Right. No, absolutely. And I, th- and I, th- I think that's what, you know, it, it is going to be very much of a first principles analysis for future courts if they find themselves trying to address the question of what is, what is a proportionate sentence for uh, food fraud or for, you know, simply the regulatory offense of mislabeling food because there's so little um, specific precedent to go on. Uh, so it is going to be very much of a first principles analysis. I mean, I think the starting point is drawing the distinction uh, that you drew, which is, you know, are we talking about a criminal offense like fraud under the criminal code, uh, or are we talking about a regulatory offense? Because the purposes are different, right? The a regulatory offense is designed to promote, uh, to protect uh, the public interest, um, uh, and focuses less so on uh, punishing uh, uh, and deterring the individual offender or corporate offender, um, and there's less moral blameworthiness involved when you're talking about a regulatory offense. And that does get reflected in the size of the fine, if we're talking about fines, uh, for example. Uh, and so that is the starting point, is, is are we talking about a regulatory offense or, or a pure criminal offense? The monetary you know, fines are going to be higher when you're uh, in a pure criminal offense like fraud under the criminal code. Um, you know, among other things that get considered, it's, an, it's oft stated, often stated that a fine can't just be, you know, even in the regulatory context, can't just be a cost of doing business. It can't just be right. a license fee to violate the regulation. So it does still have, you know, while it may not be as high as it is in the pure criminal context, it does have to be significant enough to send a message that this sort of conduct is not going to be tolerated. Uh, so there is that consideration uh, as well. Um, if you're in, you know, taking a step back for a second, it's also interesting to look at whether, uh, you know, you are, if, if you're talking about a federal offense, which the Food and Drugs Act is, it's a federal statute, uh, automatically, because there's the Federal Interpretation Act says that uh, any reference to an indictable offense in a federal statute uh, allows you to resort to the principles in the criminal code. So the sentencing principles set out in the criminal code are going to be applicable if you're talking, you know, with appropriate modification, are going to be applicable if you're talking about a Food and Drugs Act offense. Right. That's, that's how probation gets made available because it's a, it's a criminal code provision that sets out the probation. Right. There's no regulation scheme. in the FDA stating, like, here's how we deal with probation. That's right. And there are all sorts of other principles that are set out in the, in the criminal code that may be relevant. For example, you know, there has to be some consideration given to the economic viability of uh, the organization when imposing a fine. So are you going to completely, you know, are you going to completely cripple this company, which may not be the best outcome for anybody, uh, including, you know, the very large number of employees who work for this company who may have had nothing at all to do yeah. uh, with the with the wrongdoing that uh, has been alleged and, and presumably by this point has been well, proven in the case. Part of the CFI's mandate, right? Protecting sort of this food economy and protecting businesses in a sense at the same time as protecting uh, those other than low. That's right. Those are elements. So, you know, you, you throw all those principles into the mix, 
and and you're gonna have to you know there's no magic to sentencing it's 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 you know judges often say it's the hardest it's the hardest thing to do in in uh, in the criminal laws to is to arrive at an appropriate uh, punishment when it you know arrive at appropriate number when it comes to either the fine or a period of imprisonment uh, if individuals are involved. Um, uh, you know, and uh, at the end of the day, the, the overriding principle is it has to be proportionate um, but to the you know, level of blameworthiness of both the, uh, you know, of the offender and also bearing in mind the circumstances of the offender. You know, is this, was this a first offense? Uh, was there any, any prior history of misconduct, prior history of regulatory offenses, criminal offenses, anything that would, uh, you know, uh, catch the attention of the CFIA? That's also going to be relevant to determining the the appropriate penalty to impose. I mean, in practice, I think you will see, and I think you do see this in the white collar crime context uh, and the regulatory offenses context. In practice, you will get a lot of cases that will uh, resolve with a joint submission because uh, you know it, it will. It, it's often in the parties' interests to have that level of certainty. Again, the judge can always depart from a joint submission, but but uh, in you know they're not supposed to unless it would otherwise bring the administration of justice into disrepute. So right. you do have a higher level of certainty with a joint submission, and so I think you will see uh, a lot of cases resolved in that way. But that's certainly not going to be every case. There may be very good reasons to litigate certain cases uh, if if the facts are not as clear from the investigation uh, and from the crown disclosure that they actually can prove intentional. Mislabeling or mislabeling, or that they, or you know, the 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 corporate defendant may have a very good case to make to say, look, we had great systems in place, right, as to as to how things ought to be labeled, and sometimes things slip through the cracks. I mean, who, you know, and oftentimes the 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 corporate defendant, uh, you know, one of the things they have to consider when they know there's an investigation is um, whether to do an internal investigation and right. where to look and to figure out. You know the the the, mo- the CEO or general counsel may have no idea what what happened and, and what what's going on. What is what has caught the attention of the CFIA, and they'll have to think about you know do we do an internal investigation and f- get to the bottom of this um, so that we can take appropriate measures and figure out how to respond. They you know they have an interest too in finding out what happened, uh, if it was a few bad apples in the company or not, or if it was just slippage in their system, uh, so that they can patch those holes up. So. Um, there may be very good reason to to litigate a case, but in cases where the the Crown's case is pretty strong, there's always an incentive for the parties to resolve it by way of a joint submission. From the defense side, you know, uh, an early guilty. You know, we it's one of these one of the one of these great fictions of the law to say that you don't get punished for going to trial. Uh, <laughs> they say that, and on and then on one hand, and on the other hand, they they say, well, but if you plead guilty early, that is considered mitigating on on sentence. Well, right. any rational actor is going to know that that uh, that you 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 get credit for pleading guilty and resolving uh, early without putting the prosecution through the paces of conducting a trial because it's more expensive and time consuming for everybody involved. So, you know, an early resolution will uh, justify a lower penalty uh, in terms of the fine. So that's another consideration to to bear in mind. So I guess this leaves us with um, for all of the actors in the food sector who are not currently being investigated right now to their knowledge, 
Let's just wrap this up and talk about the due diligence defense right. a little bit first. So it's in, in every uh, food actor's or business's interest to really vet their and map their supply chain, to really ask probative questions, particularly when they're importing things from abroad to make sure that they're compliant. Uh, and so much of, I mean, from a commercial perspective alone, to say nothing of the regulatory, right. uh, to ensure that, I mean, these are businesses that are typically with a highly perishable product that just moves through your warehouse, your value is more often uh, related to the goodwill associated with your brand and your marketing uh, than, with, uh, than with the capital machinery you have on the ground and, and the residual earnings that you keep in your bank account. Right. Uh, and so from a commercial perspective, you want to be above board. Um, a great example, again, related to the Muchi case, would be Hero Burgers. Uh, signed a contract with Muchi uh, for them to be their exclusive uh, tomato, if not vegetable, supplier. Uh, and that has been a, obviously a bit of a disaster. So they've had to distance themselves from that, and, and there's a connection there. Right. But for all of the actors that are not being investigated right now, I mean, beyond the sort of base commercial instincts of, of developing and protecting brand value and goodwill, uh, how do we how do we make sure that when we arrive for an investigation or under a charge that we're hitting that due diligence uh, piece? Well, I, th- I think a good starting point, a good place to look is at the probation order in Muchi. Right, right. Th- those are the you know that's, that's now it's, it's it's cast at a very high level, uh, but those are the touchstones of what the CFIA at least is looking is looking for. Right. Um, you know they want a, a senior officer who's in charge of compliance to oversee the process. They want to see written standards, policies, and procedures. Um, you know, then they want to see evidence that these standards are being implemented and enforced on a, on a regular basis from the point that something comes into your, uh, you know, into your company, depending on where you are in the supply chain, to the point that the, the food product exits uh, the company to ensure that the labeling accurately reflects, um, uh, you know, the food products. So I think that's a, that's a good starting point in terms of, uh, you know, how to, you know, where to look in terms of ensuring that you've got a system in place, uh, that is duly diligent. I mean, there's no, there's no sort of one size fits all solution, uh, to this, I think. I mean, at the end, end of the day, the, you know, I, I guess, I guess one question is, am I going to well, number one, can I prove? Do I have enough documentation of right. my systems in place to prove, if I ever have to, to a court that these standards and systems do in fact exist and are being implemented? And these are the people implementing them. These are the people in charge of compliance and and quality assurance. Uh, so, can I prove it? And and I, am I going to be comfortable uh, standing up in court and uh, telling the court this is what we did? And this was reasonable. Now, reasonable is going to factor in, you know, any number of considerations, including what's what's considered uh, best practices within the industry. And and you know, people in the industry are much better uh, suited to talk about that than I am. But uh, that is going to be one of the things that is looked at. You know, is is was this what was the standard of care in the industry, and right. were you living up to that standard? Uh, that's going to go into the reasonable. This calculus, uh, along with other relevant factors, incredible. Um, Lot to think about. And, yeah, uh, fascinating yeah. stuff. Gerald, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, so thank you're at you, for Stockwoods LLP, downtown Toronto, really highly regarded. 
I mean, general litigation firm would probably be the best way to describe them. Yeah, but we, we some real specialization in your area. Yeah, I, I, I tend to specialize in, in criminal, regulatory, and white-collar uh, defense uh, and investigations. Uh, but the firm uh, is sort of a generalist litigation firm. We, we have expertise in, in criminal, uh, civil, commercial, and uh, regulatory litigation. So there's a, it's a multidisciplinary practice, which I find makes for a richer, uh, much richer <laughs> experience. So it's, it's enjoyable. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for coming out to Halifax for the Food Law Conference oh, last I had fall. A, I had a great time. It was a, it was a, remar- a remarkable accomplishment that uh, uh, on your guys' part for putting it all together, and uh, I look forward to the second one. We didn't burn down the, the law school. I thought that was a, it's, that it, was it's, sort of that was my bar of success. Going yeah, into it. it's it's intact. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, more information to come on that really soon. So, uh, so there you go. Thank you so much, and uh, yeah, welcome to the court. Thank you. That was Gerald Chan, Stockwoods LLP, uh, joined me in studio. Thank you, Gerald. I hope you all enjoyed. We'll be back in less than four weeks talking about mandatory calorie labeling in fast food uh, and quick service restaurants. Until then, thanks for joining us on Welcome to the Food Court. Take care.